the next big short to me, if I had to guess, because it has to be something that nobody would consider and have to be something that's considered ultra safe, just like home prices never went down, I think it'll be the safe withdrawal rate. Um, I think the idea of relying on appreciation to live on um, is not sustainable. Um, the, the day I got married, the stock market was at the same spot 12 years later, and I'm not that, that old. Um, the only difference is that 12-year period of time didn't start with a 1.5% risk-free rate of return. So I believe free cash flow and income is a requirement, not a preference. Welcome to Excess Returns, where we focus on what works over the long term in the markets. Join us as we talk about the strategies and tactics that can help you become a better long-term investor. Justin Carboneau and Jack Forehand are principals at Validia Capital Management. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Validia Capital. No information on this podcast should be construed as investment advice. Securities discussed in the podcast may be holdings of clients of Validia Capital. Hi guys, this is Justin. In this episode of Excess Returns, Jack and I sit down with Ryan Kruger, co-founder and CEO of Freedom Day Solutions. We talk to Ryan about dividend growth and high quality investing, his firm's new dividend ETF, the importance of keeping a long-term focus, how questions like, am I going to be okay and how much is enough, can get at the core of how advisors can strategically advise clients and much more. Ryan brings a humble, appreciative, patient and informed approach to dividend investing and advising investors. Thanks for listening. Please enjoy this discussion with Freedom Day Solutions, Ryan Kruger. Ryan, thank you for joining us today. I'm delighted to be here. Thanks, guys. We're going to talk about dividend investing, specifically dividend growth investing and the methodology behind um, the way you select companies with growing dividends um, over time. But before we get into that, I wanted to um, ask you about a few other um, interesting things. And the first is that I think in, in prepping for this, um, we found out that you were a pretty avid baseball card collector um, when you were younger. So I, I just kind of wanted maybe to start, you know, we'll start kind of loose and just talk about your experience collecting cards. And, you know, if there's anything that you sort of took from that um, early on that sort of helped you in investing and then maybe what was the best card that you ever had? Oh, man, the, the, you went deep. Congrats on going down my nerd rabbit hole, which I still love my, my little man to this day. Um, we're having fun resurrecting that that hobby. Uh, well, actually, started out as a job for me. So I was 13 years old. I worked in the back of a baseball card shop. That was my very first job. And as I try to tell my kids, I haven't not worked a summer since then, which is uh, a secret ingredient to success. I, I think a lot of us parents need to rekindle. But um, it made me it made math fun. I, I loved. Um, I was in the back sorting thousands of cards every day with my little imagination, and so looking at numbers and trends and then eventually maybe even a little portfolio construction of deep long-term value guy and a short opportunistic trade with recency bias of course they didn't have any of those terms back then but now i come to appreciate all of them and i ended up by the end of the summer turning it into a little prop trading desk where i would buy on my own after i did my job i'd buy thousands of cards in another city for a nickel and realized the hometown heroes might be selling out front of the store for 25 cents. And thankfully the owner let me do a little of that too. So in hindsight, it, pretty, it was a pretty good formative ground for being the nerd that I still am today with numbers. Nice, it was like a little entrepreneurial business you were building and you were looking at the statistics and uh, building your collection. What was, did you have any Ken Griffey Jr. Uh, 
cards. I remember that was the big one back in the day. <laughs> well, I, I tripped across a documentary not long ago that was a heartbreaking, it goes back to what happened and crashed in the late 80s, which is super helpful. And I, I wrote about this recently that because it applies to the stock market. What will end up killing any bull market isn't any of the economic indicators. It's going to be supply. And they talked about the outright fraud and oversupply and the greed where they were literally ending up printing sheets of the Ken Griffey Jr. card instead of one to 100. It was all of him. And as a kid, I was like, oh, my gosh. I, I mean, of course, you didn't know that in, in hindsight. But ever since then, I have learned supply matters. And not enough people ask that question. H how many of them are there? Um, they're, they're too busy worried about the, the front of the story. So um, supply was a great lesson in any collection. And it comes down to, I don't think a baseball card is a whole heck of a lot different than any speculative asset, including some stocks. There, there are those that produce cash flow, and then there's speculation. That's how I look at risk and investments. I want to ask you um, just a little about your firm here. Um, and you have this interesting concept, and I think of like some of the founding principles. And one of those things is you talk about this idea of a freedom day. and how that impacts the way that you look at your sort of managing and helping um, your your clients and their portfolios. So can you just maybe explain what you mean by Freedom Day and, and why it's important to and can be important for many investors? For me, it's it's a I've spent 25 years taking good notes, too. I, I'd, I'd like to think I've done a pretty good job um, selecting equities, but I've also learned a lot from the people I've served. And so the name is my giant tip of the cap. It has everything to do, this is all about them. Um, it's about their Freedom Day. Um, I, I've, I've watched and, and listened, and most folks in our business, and the best included, talk a lot about what they think is going to happen and predictions. And good, hardworking families want to know what's in it for them. And so to me, what I've learned, the happiest of them, don't even look at it as a retirement date or a number in terms of assets. It's when they could achieve freedom to do whatever they want. Some of them, they want to keep working until 90 and know that they've got enough. And it unlocks all sorts of creative doors and opportunities for them. Um, but I think it, it's about any age. I think it has a lot to do with the denominator of financial planning, not just how much you have and what you make, but what you spend, how you choose to live. Um, you can move that freedom day up or back. And to me, that's how to look at more aggressive or conservative, not make the market do it for you, but what we can do ourselves. So I've taken notes from the best, most successful investors and, and watched them and freedom is a lot better and it's more inspiring and I think it's healthier than retirement even. Um, before we get into dividends, um, which we're going to get into in detail, I want to ask you one more question about your background because in, in reviewing your background, I found, you know, in, in movies a lot of the time, you'll see stories of somebody who started in the mail room and then worked their way all the way up to the top. And, you know, when I, when I watch that, I'm always like, oh, that just can't happen in the real world. That's never going to happen. And, and I think you actually have done that. I mean, I think you started out in the mail room and, and you've worked your way up to where you are today. So I'm just wondering if you can maybe tell a little bit of the story of how, of your career and how you got where you are today. Well, so I, I, I took that very, very first profitable trade in the back of the storeroom um, and bought my first ever stock at 13 and for some weird reason and I actually recommend my own kids I've got five of them I don't want them to know what they want to do ahead of time I think that book range is fantastic rather than grind at 10,000 hours of something which is a myth by the way I tracked down the professor of that study 
parents have taken that to mean what they want it to mean, but really we should work on as many likes before we pick out what we should love. For whatever weird reason, I loved the stock market and knew it. So the day I graduated, I didn't take a week off. I didn't want to take a week off. A month off, I wanted to work and I wanted to interview. Only problem was I was politely declined an interview, too young, no network, didn't come from money. Um, and so I very aggressively asked for an interview in the form of a conversation. So I still call it my Hail Mary letter to this day. I wrote a letter. I just asked if I could visit. I knew it wasn't going to be an interview. I didn't have a resume. Great barroom trivia to this day that none of my young people believe. I still have never had a resume. I've never asked for another job. And I simply wouldn't leave. I offered to do whatever, wherever. And starting in the mailroom at, I think, $22,000 a year, I was off. That's awesome. That's such, such a good story and persistence. Um, so shifting to dividends quick, I, I wanted to, first before we get into the details of your dividend strategy, I first wanted to ask you about dividends in general, because one of the things I've noticed over my career is, you know, if you look at investors and you tell them, all right, you can have a dollar of capital gains, but you can have a dollar of dividends, they're going to pretty much pick the dollar of dividends every time. And I'm wondering what that is. What, what is it about dividends that investors like so much? What is it that's so beneficial to them? Well, you, I think you run then in a pretty smart crowd. Um, I, I, I think most. I think there's a lot of people that have been captured and, and are more excited by growth and speculation. And how to, there's very few people that want to take the long road with dividends. But I, I know what you mean. And for me, um, and I've learned, I learned in the belly of the beast of all these complicated products. This was not a choice where I decided to major in dividends back then. I literally touched every single one of the ingredients. I've managed them all. I've done them all. And I kept looking at what stood the test of time. So for me, and I think a little bit must be their answer, is it's real. You can hold it. And in the world of investing, with every passing day, less and less seems real and more and more confusion. Um, I think the next leg and what I'm, if I have any predictions whatsoever, and if there's, you talk about the next great movie that I will certainly not be in, um, the next big short to me, if I had to guess, because it has to be something that nobody would consider and have to be something that's considered ultra safe, just like home prices never went down, I think it'll be the safe withdrawal rate. Um, I, I think the idea of relying on appreciation to live on um, is not sustainable. Um, the, the day I got married, the stock market was at the same spot 12 years later, and I'm not that, that old. Um, the only difference is, that 12-year period of time didn't start with a 1.5% risk-free rate of return. So I believe free cash flow and income is a requirement, not a preference. Yeah, no, it's, it seems like, especially in the, in the world we're in today, you know, given, given low returns, I mean, you're basically looking at low returns on bonds, you're looking at low returns on stocks. I mean, yeah, it seems like that, like you said, that, that safe withdrawal rate may be a little bit different in, in the future than what, it, than what it's been in the past. I, I believe that's, that simple math is not being asked enough. What if the stock market didn't go anywhere again for another 12 years, which happens all the time? That's, that's the one question that bulls and bears underestimate. What about the market that didn't go anywhere? and nothing from the bond market. So I think that rather than is it more growth or income, I think, and what dividend growth and what we're talking about is I think it's growth of income that people need as a core ingredient. 
Yeah, you know, and also you and I talked on, on the phone before we did this, and you know, one of the things I really took from that call is, you know, I sometimes get trapped in sort of the theoretical, and so you know, the reason you and I got in touch is I wrote this article which was maybe somewhat negative on dividends in general, and you know, I was talking about things like you know a synthetic dividend. Well, why you know why do you need to have an actual dividend when you can make a dividend by selling things? But you know, I think the reality is that's more of a theoretical argument, and in the, in the practical world. You know, investors like having that money deposited in their account. You know, they don't fa they don't look at a synthetic dividend the same way they look at an actual dividend. So I think that's really important. You know, when you, when you think about dividends, is maybe a quant like me who's going to sit here and run data. Maybe that's not the way things actually work in the real world. Yeah, and I thought it was a great article, and and I thought you had actually more balanced, um, uh, a, a very balanced view. It, to me, it's just an organic ingredient that there, it's the only metric that I can point to with a track record of two hundred years. Um, that's a good place to start. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, I want to ask you now about just dividend investing in general. So when people when people talk about dividend investing, typically they associate it with sort of the high yield type investing. Let, let's buy the highest yielding dividend stocks. You know, you're coming at this from a very different direction. Um, and I'm wondering if you could maybe talk about the, the idea of dividend growth relative to a more traditional strategy of just searching for the highest yielding stocks. Yes, I think it's a it's a big question. I mean, two sides of that. First, I I, I the high yielding anything, dividends just being one of them, is more often than not a red flag to me. I've just been around too many enticing to what do I owe this great act of generosity is my first question. And in dividends in particular, you pull the curtain back just even a little bit and wonder, well, if free cash flow is plummeting, debt is being issued, there's no top line growth but there's this big fat juicy dividend. And, and by the way, I'm talking about some of the largest holdings of some of the most popular dividend ETFs and funds. Um, that's more than a problem to me. And so that's number one, the red flags. Um, but I think what sneaks up on people and, and the beauty of dividend growth is you're not taking a step back and merely getting a lower yield and being safer. But as you might've seen that simple Yogi Berra math that I like to talk about, um, you know, arguably one of the sneakiest, best Hall of Fame resumes ever. And everybody talks about his great quotes and know the guy, but very few people know what he batted, which was 285. And if you take a 2% dividend growing at 8%, eight years later, that's a 5% yield on cost which is already better than the 4% high yielding dividend that may not be raised at all. So that's simple math and the, and the dividend growers that I wanna wait for um, are far in excess even of 8% a yield, but that's just some simple conservative math. Um, that to me, that dividend growth model and, and really the, 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 the math that I think most important to people that are calculating their mailbox money and all they need is a back of an envelope to do it no fancy algorithms is what is my dividend yield and when it is growing over time boy that number can get up there in a hurry and all of a sudden if you've got a 5 10 15 percent yield on cost good luck trying to rip that security out of somebody's hands during market volatility that's a whole different question for that stakeholder in my opinion so i think it is a behavior issue as well yeah, absolutely. The ability to stick with a strategy, you know, a lot of in a lot of cases, is much more important than what the strategy is itself. Amen, brother. I want to ask you now about uh, about the concept of shareholder yield. So one of the things we've struggled with running dividend strategies is if you look back twenty or thirty years, there were more companies paying dividends than there are today, and you're seeing more of this, you know, companies returning capital via buybacks. 
And I'm wondering, as someone who runs a dividend strategy, how you think about that? Is, is there anything that over time, if this trend continues, that needs to be adjusted in a dividend strategy? Or, or do you think this is something where there's still plenty of companies paying dividends? This isn't something we really need to worry too much about. Well, one, I think you're on the right track. I think shareholder yield is one of the most underestimated um, metrics. And, and talking about looking at not only the dividend, but the buyback and the direction of debt, um, shareholder yield would be, if I was on a deserted island with a couple metrics, that would be at the top of my draft board. Um, to the to the question of, of looking out going forward, I, I see something a little bit different. Um, I, I see former growth stocks turning into cash cows, realizing that their shareholder base may appreciate dividends more than they ever realized. And I see new dividend companies that are not going to show up on the 25-year aristocrats or 50-year dividend kings, which a lot of those, in my opinion, are overpriced and a little overrated and growing their dividend at 0.1% a year to keep on the list. I'm more interested in, in terms and, and who has a change in policy. And I'll never forget one of my favorite examples. I'm sitting in Buck's Pancake House in the hills of Woodside, California in 1999 with a semiconductor chip founder and later I would find out hero and I at the time I was just this young portfolio manager who somebody with unbelievable grace had recommended he talked to me to diversify his giant winnings um, I, I didn't deserve to be there but from the grace and good luck of others I had an unbelievable opportunity well fast forward so that day I look back in hindsight was the largest real estate transaction right outside Silicon Valley in history at the time. I was literally on the edge of the pin of the bubble, not knowing it, of course. Um, and he had the wisdom and humility. And he, I'll never forget it because he walked in. I didn't know what to wear. I'm from Texas. I don't know what you wear in Silicon. I didn't, I'd never been there before. And he walked in in overalls. And I'll never, I mean, the humility was just, and, you know, next table, this is where AOL was founded, and the Tesla prototype was in the parking lot years later. And this, all these great companies were born in this little restaurant. And first of all, he said, I've had enough. I, I know I need to take something off the table of risk. That was a tremendous lesson. But watching that company, which was one of the poster childs of collapsing, they ended up turning into an unbelievable cash cow. And from the highest, most speculative growth tech companies, is now a dividend machine. Some of these companies are printing more cash than they know what to do with. They can pay back debt, they can buy back shares, and still have enough left over, and they're still doing R&D. I think that's a misnomer of dividend payers don't know have anything else to do with their cash. Actually, they might still have enough left over to reward stakeholders. Another thing I see uh, is pretty common in your strategy, and Justin's going to get into the details in a second, but is that you're, you're really trying to find high-quality companies. You know, and that's really a difference you'll see between the high-yielding strategies, which are basically value strategies, and more of a dividend growth strategy, which really is more of a quality strategy. And you know, we, we've had a lot of people, a lot of quants and different types of investors in the podcast. And one of the things people have the hardest time defining is what is a quality company. You know, everybody knows it maybe when they see it, but when you get into the details of what it is, you know, I struggled with that myself. Like, what is a quality company? And so I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about what you consider a quality company to be. I think you're onto something, and I think you you could have a table full of different metrics to choose from. And a lot of them would, would make a lot of sense and be good answers of very traditional quality. Um, I don't think a lot of them are secrets. They're, they're, are, therefore, the, the uncrowded trader in me wonders where's the opportunity. So I think the way I would answer that question and to make this more accessible, and I would argue a more challenging question for the smartest 
uh, quants out there is I'll sit down at a dinner table with my own kids and ask them what business will still be doing the same business 10 years from now. That's a very short list. It's a fun game, by the way, to talk to kids about capitalism, but I think professional portfolio managers have a very difficult time when all the numbers and moving charts are like, that's not an, so to me, the, and it's very subjective, but consistency would be where I'd start with that quality. Cause I don't think it's an easy question to answer. And I think that shortens the list considerably on where to start. Um, I know that's not a hardcore answer, but I think because of the way you frame the question, I think that's where some of the biggest opportunities lie. I think there's very few companies that have consistency over time, including their dividend policy. I think it, you know, one of the things I, I believe the statistic is like in the S&P 500, the average lifespan of the companies in the S&P 500 is around 17 years, something like that. So either some of them, you know, obviously leave the index, get bought. I mean, some, some probably very small percentage go bank, but it just goes to show that, you know, being the, those companies that are, that are on top, don't stay on top forever. So that consistency, um, over the long run is, it, it is, it's just part of capitalism. Like more competition comes in, uh, profits get eroded. And so finding those types of companies I think is, is pretty challenging. Um, I, and maybe that gets into, maybe we can get a little bit more specific because in terms of trying to understand, you know, the way that you actually select securities, um, on your, I believe it was the ETF site or in the actual, um, like tear sheet, you talk about your sort of this five step discipline, repeatable process in which, you know, you basically look at companies through, and I think some of it's maybe quantitative. Maybe some of it is not, um, but you can kind of flesh it out. But in terms of, I just, was just wondering if you could talk about sort of some of these, what goes into some of these like core um, uh, criteria. And the first one is um, operating business adv advantage. So how do you uncover that within the firms that you're looking at? So it is definitely all, all math-based. The reason I love math, it leaves no room for opinions, including my own. I, I want operating revenue growth. And I think already that eliminates a giant pool of very popular dividend stocks that if you really look at some of these mature companies, are they still growing the top line? And we want operating business. We want to look at free cash flow. The, the return on invested capital those simple mathematical, we're, we're basically we're getting the entire universe of stocks ends up with about 1% that we'll actually look at. And, and the combination of these five steps is really what whittles it out. It's not some of this, some of that. It's if they get through all of these different um, hurdles. And I call it a stock tournament because I, I, as, a, as, a, as a hoop fan, I think of the stock market as this bracket. And at these different regions, um, the other part of the tournament idea is that the answers change. When the inputs change, so should the outputs. So I don't fall in love with a company. We're going to rescore them every single month. So the operating business is first. Um, we want to look, I think, another lazy fallback for a lot of dividend guys as they talk about a moat. And I think it's easy to see 
I think it's easy to justify. I think it's easy to say that's why you'll stay in it no matter what. Uh, but the thing about wide moats is they attract competition from the business itself and then also from investors. It's clear to see it, so they're going to value it. So the next stage that we're looking at is the direction of that growth. The smallest of profit margins expanding is more interesting to me than a big fat profit margin that is being shot at. Um, when you start to see turns in free cash flow all of a sudden exploding, that is very interesting to me compared to a heavy free cash flow that's slowly declining. So the direction of those advantages is really where we roll up our sleeve and that's what's not easy to screen for and that's actually good old fashioned um, hardcore math which I love to do. And we can do the same couple steps on the dividend. So the, the quality of the dividend is coming from operating free cash flow. A lot of people look at the dividend payout ratio from earnings which can be manufactured and engineered. I want to look at the payout ratio from free cash. I want to look at the direction of the dividend growth. Is it accelerating? Um, so those couple of steps, the advantage, but then really to me, the special sauce for us is the direction of that advantage. And then we look at valuation. Um, the price step is, is critically important. Unlike a value guy though, I'm not interested in undervalued stocks that aren't growing their top line, that don't have healthy free cash flow growth, that aren't accelerating those. If you marry both of those together, and if you're picky and selective, and I think the beauty of active management is you can be real picky and then you can have cell discipline when any of them change. And there's a little, if you, that's thunder in the background in Houston, Texas, by the way, to, to underscore that point in case you wondered what that was. Um, the idea of then saying, all right, a roster of 50 stocks, you could have fundamentally superior growth and pay less than market averages rather than two different choices. I think they're two sides of the same coin for my selection process. And the very last thing we look at, believe it or not, is dividend yield. I love that you're getting this. You're really on the on the direction of things or the improvement of uh, profit margins or um, the dividend growth improving. I think that that's a very unique um, unique sort of way that you're looking at it. It's we run a strategy. It's not a dividend strategy, but it's it's called it's it's a it's a like a it's a momentum and fundamental momentum strategy. And so one piece of it is just pure momentum. The other is this fundamental momentum. And so it looks at a number of different criteria to see if the trend in these fundamentals are improving. Um, it's one of our newer strategies. It tends to be one of the better performing ones, actually, interestingly enough. But it, when you were talking about that, it sort of reminded me to some extent of, of a strategy that we're familiar with that does look at the improvement in the fundamentals to try to see that the direction of those fundamentals is, is going the right way. The, the, those are not two different conversations, and I love what y'all are doing there. At its heart, there's just a little bit of uncertainty there, too. You're trying to identify a turn before it becomes obvious and I like I don't like crowds very much so so those are where some of the opportunities lie I agree with you you know I looked at the portfolio it looked like a nice mix of I mean you certainly have you know financial exposure some nice technology exposure which is to your point you know some of these some of these technology companies are, are cash cows and they're just minting money I mean think of Apple for example and you know I don't know if that's in the portfolio I'm not asking you to comment on specific names it's just you know when I was looking at what what's being held in the ETF. Um, 
you know, it was a nice mix of stocks. But what I wanted to sort of ask you is, you know, I think this fifth, fifth step, like you said, is bringing this list down to the top 1%. So you're holding, I think, approximately, or maybe exactly 50 names in the portfolio. So how do you sort of view the size of the portfolio, the number of positions, and balance that with, you know, proper diversification? Some studies show 30, you know, once you hit 30 stocks or so, you're pretty much properly diversified. But, you know, how do you guys, I guess when you were constructing and looking to build this portfolio and put it in an ETF wrapper, what, was the 50 stocks sort of a function of that's what we think we need to get proper diversification? Or is that kind of like what the list is after you go below 50, you know, you're really kind of losing some of the, some of the quality and dividend growth characteristics that you No, it's, it's very intentional. I think it's a very important question. Um, I think I respect a lot of different viewpoints. Mine was built by learning and studying and having run the SMA strategy, which we've just turned into an ETF. This is not something new for us. It's always been 50 after learning that the benefits of diversification erode meaningfully after that. But the power of concentration, um, we're going to be able to feel it. And I, 30 to 50, um, I, I'm not against 30 at all. I, I like that range. 50 works beautifully for us. We are very intentional about being across all sectors. We're very intentional about if there are style boxes and, and the people that will measure these stocks, there are going to be growth and value. Um, the notion of dividend stocks being all value box is inaccurate, uh, or at least doesn't have to be if you're selective. Um, we measure everything from source of revenues, overseas versus domestic, because I want to be able to take a portfolio of 50 names and say I'm more diversified than most statements of 18 different mutual funds than an advisor's looking at and significantly more efficient to do it. So that is very intentional. Um, we're very balanced uh, by rule. We will never be out of balance. Um, and that's where sell stops come into. I think sell disciplines, um, it, it wouldn't make for a great podcast, but if any active manager or active investor could only have one rule, I would say trade all your best ideas in the world for anything you're doing for one set of sell disciplines. It works, um, actually, I think it works in all corners of life. It works on my blue jeans. I don't buy another pair. I stop eating. Um, it works on <laughs> relationships only once. So th that that keeps it. That 50 is not static. It, it, it needs to be remeasured and it needs to be rescored. Um, so that, that's a big part of the process for me anyways. I want to ask you about your experience as an ETF issuer. You know, we, we issued an ETF back in 2014 and we issued a deep value ETF at the wrong time. So it didn't work out for us. But one of the things that struck me is, is a small issuer. You definitely have a lot of cards stacked against you. You know, the, the big names are pulling in most of the assets and it's 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 really it's a really interesting experience, but it's also a very challenging experience. And I'm I'm just wondering if you maybe talk about what you've learned so far, having, having launched an ETF as a small issuer, you know, what you've learned in that process. Um, well, I, 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 go in, I went in with eyes wide open and, and I'm a slow mover. It took me a long time, two years of due diligence. I'm lucky to have trusted allies at Alpha Architect that walked me to the finish line. Um, but I knew this was, I mean, this, this makes David and Goliath look like a pick em matchup when you're entering this arena. Um, but I was willing to play the long game. Um, I was willing to back it with all my own money first and earn trust of others, not expect it, not ask for it. Um, 
so I had a little bit of an unfair advantage. I already had people that trusted me. Um, that, that it is a difficult, pride-swallowing siege, and all of the unbelievable benefits for the investor. There's another side of that story. It's not easy. It's expensive. It's difficult. There's regulations. But if your purpose is, for me anyways, was singularly focused on what would be the best way to serve families for the next 25 years, it's a no-brainer. I think what you talked about there in terms of the long game is really important. You know, if, if you're going to issue an ETF, you, you want it to be something that you're going to be behind for a long period of time. Because, you know, as you probably know, having done this, you know, a lot of times in your first year or two, what people are going to judge you by is your performance in your first year or two. But, you know, those of us that have studied this know that that tells you absolutely nothing about what your performance is going to be long term. So you have to sort of be able to sit through that. And if, you know, if you get unlucky and it's a bad period for your type of strategy, you have to be able to be there on the other side of it. Absolutely. Um, the... the from, from the benefits of, of the tax benefits being underestimated by a lot of advisors still, we're, they're still learning. This is early. I mean, these are still early days. Um, more than half of the investors walking around on Main Street that are not listening to podcasts and on Twitter in that echo chamber on Wall Street, they don't even know what an ETF is. We have an amazing amount of good work to do for good people. Um, and that, that gets me excited. And the ability to, to, to work with and help and share our playbook with other advisors gets me real excited and we're expanding um, and, and that was that, that was the, that was a final nudge for me um, I, I didn't need this for me but I really like the idea of sharing this and making this more accessible for folks that don't want to sit or come into an office and have a full-blown plan that make it more accessible uh, make it travel so I'm, I'm very very excited and fortunate to do it that makes a lot of sense. I want to shift gears quick and talk about financial planning. You know, I just earned the uh, CFP designation earlier this year, and you know, we've always done, done asset management, so a lot of this was was very new to me. You know, thinking about things like estate planning and tax planning and things like that. And I know you have extensive experience in that area, so I was just wondering for someone who's a newly minted CFP like me, who's going to maybe start doing some of this, I'm wondering what type of advice you might give me um, about about wealth management in general. Well, first of all, congratulations. That's no joke. That, that's a big deal. Uh, we, we just had one of our young guys passed the test and to watch him and his face as he got close and he's the, he's one of the smartest guys I know but that that's a that's a big deal um, so I have a couple of other divisions of this building that do that for me so I'm exclusively on the portfolio but the ability to mesh and talk fluently um, and again it's all about serving real good hard-working families the plan is even more important than the investment choice. If you're able to do both in-house, you have just put yourself in a very, very, very small group that either outsources one or the other. To do it holistically, and then for us, we've added tax and legal, um, that, that is, we're going for peace of mind and the ability to deliver that peace of mind, which is more important than any investment strategy, assuming you have all that playbook built, um, I, I compliment you. I think it's tremendous. I think the ability to speak firsthand um, and, and be able to say we're going to construct the plan by hand and have our hands in the asset management, that's an uncommon offering where I think people like to sit knee to knee with the chef in, in, in the kitchen. One of the challenging things with planning can be like boiling it down into something that people can understand. And one of the cool things I saw on your website is you had a really cool two question framework you, you've developed to maybe get that down to its essence. And so you, the two questions you had are, am I going to be okay? 
and how much is enough? And I was wondering if you could maybe talk about those two questions and how they maybe play into the planning process. Well, if you only could see how many yellow legal pads over 25 years it took to get to the only two that matter, that, that is not simple for simple sake. I, I think the holy grail in this business is deeply informed simplicity, which for better or worse takes a little gray hair, takes some experience. For me, it, it takes listening, not telling people what's most important, what I've learned it's what's most important. And the two questions, um, real people don't care about R squared and sharp ratios and quantitative studies. They wanna know, am I gonna be okay when something bad happens? It's that simple. Don't tell me about the drawdown, don't tell me to hang. So that, that for me, that means a couple things. Do you even have enough removed from harm's way to begin with? Very few investors can answer that question definitively. They think they're in some low risk stuff. They were told it was conservative or balanced, but what happens when interest rates move? Or what happens when you don't have that, that simple risk analysis, first of all, am I gonna be okay also should mean, am I getting ripped off? Could I save day one, 20, 30, $40,000 in excess fees by a simpler plan, I'm a lot more okay already and I didn't have to take one penny extra risk for returns. To me, the humblest version of that question is, let's say an investor is capable of doing all this on their own. They don't need any of us for anything because I've met some of them. I think the do-it-yourself investor is wildly underrated. Wall Street hardwired me to believe they were the worst investors. Actually, they got better technology and access to data now than I had at Smith Barney. So some of them are more than capable of putting this together. And some of the services like you're providing, they can do it as good or better than a lot of advisors in these ivory towers. But also, am I okay should mean what happens if I'm not, as the investor, capable of still performing? Do I have a partner or a plan of some sort so that I could handle hand, in my opinion, on one page to my spouse, here's how this works. So am I okay is deeply informed simplicity for me. Um, how much is enough is just a completely different way. Um, I say my, my way is not the only way, it's not the right way, but for us, we've learned, I think retirement planning needs to be turned upside down. We talked about Freedom Day. How much is enough to me is not an asset number. When I started a million dollars, you save and you live off interest, and that's $75,000 a year job. You're pretty good. Social Security, a little pension, six figures. What is it now? How do you answer that? with a one and a half percent risk-free rate of return. So to me, how much is enough is multiple streams of free cash flow, not counting on appreciation, if they exceed all of my expenses, needs and wants with a bucket of contingency cash to the side. It doesn't mean I have to stop working, but I can definitively show my family or at least know and give me a little peace of mind if I don't want to tell them and I want to still play poor and they, they got to go still go to work. I know how much is enough. And I think that question is not asked enough and it's not answered the right way. And it's usually based on some sort of speculation or from an advisor. And I don't say this negatively, just the simple demographics. If an advisor is the average advisor, is 63 years old, if he's telling, telling somebody you got enough to retire in two years and he himself is about to retire, I got to wonder who's there for the next 30 years. Um, and a lot of them don't have simple written financial plans. I think that's a great first question, by the way. Show me your plan. Show, show me how you're invested and show me how this is going to work for me to know I'm going to have enough and who I'm working with over the next 30 years. So those, those simple 
two questions are a lot of different pieces of that, but I think if you can just answer those two, literally nothing else will matter. And the magic of that to me is then all of a sudden everything else is viewed correctly as a distraction. You've given an investor this shield of armor that I'm not worried about chasing the answer and trying to get to the bottom of everything. Who's even getting to the bottom of one thing anymore? Um, so that peace of mind and, and the joy, I would say, of missing out and a lot of those other distractions completely changes the trajectory of, of that, in my opinion. You mentioned uh, standard deviation. How do you think, you know, as, as a quant, this is something that's a weakness of mine, is I tend to say, you know, I'll put something in front of a client, and they'll say, well, here's your downside capture or something like that. And they're looking at me like, what, what even is that? Um, how do you think about that stuff? You know, incorporating numbers into the process while, while doing what you were talking about? Well, from, I'll speak as a non-portfolio manager now, I'll take that hat off, and from our planning department for an advisor, we, we make it real hard on ourselves to answer that question and, and overly conservative. We say, what if we do not get one penny of appreciation from any different source? And that means we're going to analyze whether it be your real estate, stocks, speculation. Um, what do you have in free cash flow that you can count on? And is some of it risk-free? And that may be a whole pile of cash, which is underrated, by the way, for planning. It may be some version of an insured pension. They're kind of going away for corporate retirees. But having some, it could be a simple, beautifully boring, tax-free insured municipal bond, which I still think are the best kept secret off Wall Street. You marry that safety and simplicity with a little bit of a inflation beating rising dividend, which is where I put my hat back on and what we're doing here. I want to see what my free cash flow, if I don't withdraw any principal and if I get no upside, that way all of a sudden all those extra surprises are just that, surprises to the upside. Um, that's a different way of looking at it, but then if somebody has a plan, they can put their head on their pillow knowing, I got this. I, I, I'm not going to be worried about what happens tomorrow. Brian, you've been so generous with your time here. We just have really two more questions for you. The first is um, I wanted to ask you about um, something you wrote in Josh Brown and Brian Portnoy's book, How I Invest My Money. And uh, I think in one of the opening chapters, you, you wrote, I think the greatest risk that the, the greatest trick the devil ever played on investors is making them think it is the investing part that matters the most. The working part moves the needle more, both for the math of deposits, but also the discipline of a purpose. So can you just sort of describe what you were getting at with that? Yeah, what what in the world does that mean? It's really crumbs, crumbs of that entire simple line have been discussed throughout this great podcast that you guys have asked all the right questions. You've already pulled the covers back on all of it. I think it's a, another profound respect and a big old giant virtual hug for the people that I serve and work for. Um, they never expected the stock market to retire them. And I, I worry a little bit about younger investors. Um, are they seeing the hard work part of it? And I'll just boil this down and I, I I just happen to believe this and I'm heavily biased by the most successful people around me. I think your craft, whatever that is, is your highest ROI. I think whatever the stock and bond market does for you is wonderful and acts extra and you need those tools. But I think that focus, I, I, I've never seen anybody retire happily looking at a spreadsheet about when they will have enough. They're too busy working. They're, they're too busy creating it themselves. I also think it's more fulfilling. It's more purpose. Um, and I think whether we just hired a young guy who didn't care to ask any questions about what he was going to earn, 
he was more interested in what he could learn, like that kid in the mailroom. Um, and that's playing the long game. And I think most folks in our business want to talk about different ROIs for obviously self-serving, understandable reasons that we're going to go make you all this money. Um, it's a team. It's a partnership. The, the best investors want to take matters in their own hands. And they can move the needle on Freedom Day up so much easier based on their earning capacity. It's This is, shouldn't be about saving a little bit on not drinking a cup of coffee. I mean, go find an, a craft where you have unlimited upside and grind and being being willing to play that long game. That's what I was getting at. And I think too many people are, when you put the stock market um, as, as the only tool that's going to get you there, put too much pressure on it and on yourselves, it creates a lot of this dysfunction. It creates behavioral problems. I mean, I, as this, even this notion of behavioral economics, I, I, I have a little different opinion. I don't, why isn't there behavioral plumbing? Um, I, I don't want to learn how to, to, to do plumbing. I, I want to trust somebody to do this and get back to my job. I think we create a lot of our own problems. Um, and so that's, that, that's what that meant. I mean, the greatest trade I ever made in my life, and it works at my day job and it works in my relationships, is trading all expectations for more appreciation at any turn. So that's the end game of that comment. And boy, has that trade and trying to stick to and remind myself it's not easy. Um, it changes your outlook on everything from what I've seen. Yeah, no, that's great. And I think, you, you know, I think there, there's probably uh, breadcrumbs of what you just said in this, what maybe what you're going to say in this, um, in, in a lot, the last question here, which is, and this is a, the way we like to end it with our guests is, you know, based on your experience in the market, if you could impart one piece of wisdom or teach one lesson to, you know, your average investor out there, um, what would it be? I mean, you've been in the markets for uh, a long time now. And so I think, you know, you, you, there, there's something here and a lot of what you've said already, I think are elements that, you know, are, are very important teachings and wisdoms that investors can learn from. But if you could maybe boil it down to like one thing, how would you um, answer that? Well, I'm working on this for a book. So you got that scoop first out of me, which is, is good. And it's, I, I, I'm trying to tell my kids and young investors but the cool part is my 90 and we've now got five clients over 100 they would probably say the same thing they're still playing the long game they're if you avoid an increasing supply of shortcuts which are in front of us every day you're all of a sudden no matter what you're doing investing included with the most easy and tangible to see results you're already finding yourself on some pretty uncrowded paths if you look for every long cut imaginable. And that's not easy. Instant gratification is a real deal. Um, deferred gratification isn't very popular. I don't even think it's a term. But, but if I have the choice and the ability to play the long game, um, I think what I've realized that I come to appreciate more with every passing day since I left Wall Street and started an RIA is this world of abundance where capitalism works because of competition and it's wonderful it's the most pure longest lasting system i know of but to be a happy human being live in a world of abundance 
and it is a small, beautiful world, and how you treat people um, is a big part of this too. And I know I'm getting a little off the path of, of an investor-only question, but I think they collide with each other. Um, so playing the long game, not just with your investments, and I think, and I said it earlier, it's easy to say hang in there and play the long game. And by the way, notice I didn't say hang in there. I think anybody should fire their advisor or portfolio manager if they're ever told to hang in there. I think there has to be some sell discipline in life if you're willing to play the long game. You got to stop doing things that are not working and do more things that are working. That's great. Well, we're, we're excited to see you play the long game with this new ETF you have. and. Um, certainly when the book gets published, if, uh, you want to come back on the podcast, um, you'll always be welcome. Um, where can people go to find out more about your firm, um, about the fund and your overall investing philosophy? Well, I'm excited about y'all's success too. And I, I want to be a part of it and, and share in that as well. Our, our website is freedom day solutions. Com and the fund website is freedomdaydividend.com, but it's also on the main site, Freedom Day Solutions. Um, and, and I'm appreciative and grateful, and, and we're learning together. Um, and, and, and sharing playbooks in an open, transparent way is my favorite part of this business. So I was glad to be here and grateful you had me. Great. Thanks so much, Ryan. We appreciate it. Thank you. You guys are doing a great job. Glad to be a part of it. Thank you. Hi guys, this is Justin again. Thanks so much for tuning into this episode of Excess Returns. You can follow Jack on Twitter at, at @practicalquant and follow me on Twitter at, at JJ Carboneau. If you found this discussion interesting and valuable, please subscribe in either iTunes or on YouTube or leave a review or a comment. We appreciate it.